Yeah, let's pick on Psalm number one. So let's just start first number one. Uh, blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of the sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of the water that bringeth forth his fruit in season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Um, so I'm just going to work down through the verses and highlight some of the things I've seen. Um, and then you can look yourselves, and there's probably kind of other things I've missed. Um, so in verse 1, it starts with, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. Um, and the first thing that came to my mind when reading this is the importance of good Christian friends and good company. Um, and I'm not saying non-Christian or ungodly friends is a bad thing, but we have to be careful and make sure they don't pull us down or tempt us to do things we know we shouldn't as Christians. Um, I know even in my class in school, there really isn't any other Christians, but it doesn't mean I can't be friends with anyone else. But it is important that we don't get caught up in the things they may be doing at the weekends or in their spare time or after school. Um, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, it says, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Um, I think this verse shows us that we do have to be different and take a stand. Um, and we can do that by our actions or through what we say. Um, for example, in school, it may be the language we use or say no to some of the activities our friends are doing. Um, and then through that, that can lead to opportunities to explain why we said no or why we're different. Um, another thing I think is important in the first few verses is that God says we'll be blessed for standing out and for being different. And I know it's hard sometimes for all our glasses for. Um, following that in verse 2, um, it says about God's delight in the Christian who spends time in his word. Um, it says meditating in his word day and night, which to me points to quiet times and making time to read his word, even though sometimes we don't feel like it or we're tired. It's still important to make time to spend with him. Um, verse 3 then, which we'll read again, says, And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Um, so this verse describes the Christian like a tree, and we should be rooted and grounded in Christ. And the only way to do that really is by reading his word and praying to him and getting to know him better. Um, later in the verse it says we'll be, or that we'll bring forth fruit. But this can only happen if we're grounded and trusted in him. Um, another thing to notice in verse 3 is that it says, His leaf shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. So I think this is quite encouraging for Christians, as it shows that God will provide care for us, acting like the nutrients in the soil for the tree. Um, so in verses 4 to 6, um, I'll just read them again. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Um, 
Tees versus are pretty much the opposite to verses one to three. And um, everything that God provides for the Christian doesn't apply to the ungodly. Although at the times at times it can seem like non Christians are more happy and enjoying the things of the world, these verses tell us that in the end the ungodly will perish. Verse four describes them like the chaff which the wind driveth away. And for those who didn't know what that is, because I didn't, the chaff is like the bit of the kernel that is thrown away before it's ground into flour. Um, so it's pretty much useless. Um, and it's dead. And it's a bit like the non-believer who is dead without Christ. Um, and this leads to verse five and six, which tells us about Christ, or it tells us without Christ, we would be found lacking on the day of judgment. Um, in Daniel 5, verse 27, it says, You have been weighed in the balances and are found wanting. Um, I think that sums up verse 5 pretty well and emphasizes the fact that without Christ, there is no way to happiness or into heaven. Um, the last verse then tells us that the Lord knows the way of righteousness and will care for us and look after us. However, it goes on to say, The ungodly will perish. And although at times it may seem easier to go with the crowd and live an ungodly life, I think these first few verses remind us that in the end there's only one way for real happiness, which is through God and through his word. Thanks very much. Thank you for having me this evening. Um, I'll give you a little bit of background. First of all, um, I'm Ashley. I'm 33. I've been a doctor for 10 years and a GP for five. Um, I'm going to chat a wee bit about my work and specifically about some of the ethical difficulties that I've had in the job that I've worked in um, and just different issues that I have faced and I suppose how I have responded to those as a Christian. If you have any specific questions, and I'm aware that some of the things I may talk about tonight are maybe things that you maybe haven't quite encountered yet, things that might be a bit embarrassing. If there's any questions you want to ask but feel you might be a bit embarrassed to ask, put them in the chat and I'll answer them at the end, but nobody will know who asked them. And as I said, there are some things that I'll maybe say that you find perhaps a bit embarrassing or topics that are a bit difficult to discuss. As a GP, it's something we talk about every day. So I will talk about it quite frankly and honestly in some parts. Um, but it's just to give you a bit of a heads up that these are difficult, difficult issues. And as you grow up, you will encounter more of them. Um, I think even in the world we're living in at the moment, and certainly some of these are quite topical. Um, if you're in any way interested in politics or local politics, things that are happening right now. Um, this will be stuff that will be coming up in the news. So um, it's just to give you a little bit of background that way. But I'm happy to answer any questions at the end. Or as I said, if you want to put them in the chat, that's absolutely fine as well. So as I said, um, I have been a GP for about five years. Um, I grew up in a Christian home. Uh, my church background is actually Church of Ireland. Um, but a lot of my teaching as I was growing up as a Christian was through the teaching and ministry of CEF. Uh, that's how I know Abigail, how I know Rebecca um, on here. And I must say their teaching would be quite um, quite conservative background, probably quite um, uh, sound teaching, very good teaching. And I suppose probably by the time I was in my teens, I saw the world as very black and white, right and wrong. Um, this was right. This was wrong. There was no gray areas in between. Um, and I think that's uh, sometimes the outlook of a lot of Christians, perhaps until you start encountering perhaps different stories or seeing that sometimes things are not maybe just quite as black and white as we would like them to be. 
Towards the end of school, I decided I wanted to be a doctor. Um, now, I never really had much interest in being a hospital doctor. I wanted to be a GP. I knew it would suit me and my personality. Um, I liked the idea of the fact that I would work locally um, in a town nearby where I would live. I liked the fact that I would get to know patients and they would come back to me time after time. I didn't like the fact that it would be if you were a hospital doctor, you might see someone once and never see them again. That was not a thing that appealed to me. I wanted to build up relationships and develop an area of trust between me and patients. It was always something I felt strongly about. But, you know, I never considered that my faith would actually cause some problems or some dilemmas in work. Or rather, I should say it the other way around. I never thought work would actually cause any problems with my faith or cause any dilemmas. And I'm not sure had I thought about that at the time or had I been fully aware of that at the time, would it have influenced my decision to be a doctor? It might have. Um, I don't know. But I think it's the sort of thing that we have to remember sometimes that, that God calls us to be in the world and not of the world. It doesn't mean to say that we always agree with things that are happening, but God has called us, yes, to be separate and distinct, but to still be in the world that we live in. Um, Samuel, as he was talking there, was saying in the verse one of, of uh, Psalm one about Christians and having Christian friends and the importance of that. But we will live in a world where we will encounter people who are not Christians. And that will sometimes place us in scenarios that are difficult or slightly more challenging. But I think that's the way God intends it as well um, for us as Christians to be able to shine a light in a time when people are maybe not seeing it elsewhere. As a student um, at Queen's, I became involved with Christian Medical Fellowship. And it is, as it sort of suggests, it was a, a society or a, a fellowship for Christian medics. And I went to their conferences um, as a student. Some of them were in Ireland. Some of them were in the UK. And it was there that I realised, actually, there are quite a few ethical issues and certainly things that people were facing in the rest of the UK and Ireland that we weren't in Northern Ireland, particularly abortion. I remember hearing uh uh, medical students and trainees who were having to go and sit in in abortion clinics and watch abortion surgery happen because that was part of their mandatory training and it was just part of their medical training and they didn't agree with this but I suppose perhaps naively then and that was only maybe 10 15 years ago I didn't think the law in Northern Ireland would ever really change or certainly maybe not any time that it would affect me but Within a very short space of time and just the 10 years, we can see that that is now an issue that we as medics in Northern Ireland are starting to face and really have to uh, have to contend with. Um, so that's one of the big changes, I suppose, that we've seen already. As a medic, I think there was two things that we sort of... Uh, I suppose I wear two hats in my day to day job. I am a medic and I am a Christian because as a doctor, you have a duty of care. Um, sometimes quite literally, someone's life can be in your hands. They trust you. They respect you. They respect your decision and your authority and your knowledge. And they come to you for help. Um, and actually, that's an amazing privilege. It's part of my job that I love. The fact that you are there for someone at their time of need. There are patients who have told me things that they have told nobody else. And I'm not saying that because um, I'm wonderful. It's because of the role that I'm in. It's because as a doctor, people trust you and they will talk to you openly and frankly about things. And that's a big responsibility. But on the other hand, the GP or the GMC, which is the, the sort of regulatory council that looks after all doctors, they realise that patients are vulnerable and they, they need protection. And so they have set out duties of a doctor that we have to comply with. So it's sort of like a like a handbook, like a rule book of things we should and shouldn't do as doctors. Things that constitute good practice. We have to keep up to date with medical developments. We have to practice in a safe way, not beyond our training. All of these lots of, lots of things. OK, 
But they do acknowledge that a lot of medics will come from different faith backgrounds. There'll be lots of Christians in the UK, but there will be lots of Muslim doctors, lots of different faith doctors. And they actually acknowledge that there will be some areas that doctors with a faith will struggle with. They have written in a clause into their duties of a doctor called the conscientious objection clause, understanding that there are some things that some Christian doctors or some uh, other faith doctors may struggle with. I'm going to read it to you and I want you to listen particularly to what it says and how this might put us even in a, a difficult scenario. It says you must explain to patients if you have a conscientious objection to a particular procedure. You must tell them about their right to see another doctor and make sure they have enough information to exercise that right. In providing this information, you must not imply or express disapproval of that patient's lifestyle, choices or beliefs. If it is not practical for a patient to arrange to see another doctor, you must make sure that arrangements are made for another suitably qualified colleague to take over your role. So it protects the patient that they still have a right to access the care that they are entitled to, but it does protect the doctor that if there's something you're not happy to do, you don't have to do it. However, you do have to make sure that a patient still can access that. And that's where sometimes some of the difficulties can still come in. I would say there's a few areas that I encounter some dilemmas and some ethical challenges in work. So I'll start with the start, quite literally, and start with some of the beginning of life issues. And these are some of the things that I have encountered. What would you do if? That's maybe the question I will ask. As a GP, imagine you're for, fast forward in 10, 15 years into your life and you are a doctor. Imagine if a 15 year old girl comes in and she starts asking you about her sore foot. But at the end of the consultation, she asks you if you can start the pill. What would you do? Or a 24 year old girl ends up on your telephone list on a Monday morning and it's put through as an urgent call. She had unprotected sex the night before and she's looking the morning after pill. What would you do? Or a 41 year old mother comes in. She's already got three kids, but she's pregnant and she doesn't think she can afford another child. And she asks, what can she do? What are her options? What do you do there? Now, these are all real scenarios. These are all things that I have faced with all patients that have come in to me, even in my short time as a GP. How do you deal with those or how do I deal with those? Um, I can't say that I have made decisions that other Christians would make. Um, this is an area where Christians will differ. OK, and that's what I want to say. There are some grey areas here. Not everything is as black and white. And the one thing I want you to take away from this part is know what you believe before you're put on the spot. Before I encountered any of those scenarios that I mentioned to you there, Christian Medical Fellowship had got me thinking about these as ethical issues before I encountered them. So whilst I was still training, whilst I was still a student, they got me thinking about when does life begin? What do I really believe about contraception? What do I really believe about um, emergency contraception or the morning after pill? What do I believe about abortion? They got me thinking about these issues and how I would face, face them, how I would deal with them when faced with them, because it wasn't if, it was when. What would I be happy to do? Well, the first thing I would be thinking of is, well, what does the Bible say about these things? The Bible is clear on many occasions here. Firstly, the Bible is clear and it says, thou shalt not kill. And I think if you think that life begins or you believe life begins um, at conception or in the womb, certainly abortion is quite clearly against God's law. But then you have to look at other things the Bible says. Well, it says in Genesis, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave onto his wife and they will become one flesh. So, again, the Bible is quite clear that sex should be between a husband and wife and not outside of that. 
So how does that influence your prescribing of a contraceptive pill to a couple that aren't married or a couple that are living outside of God's law? The Bible also says, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And so there are different things that the Bible are saying or the Bible is saying um, clear to Christians uh, and clear to people who follow God's laws as to what we should do. But it doesn't necessarily specifically answer some of the questions that are now ethical dilemmas as science and technology and all of that has moved on. We're much more informed now as to how things are and medical advances have happened to the to the greatness of mankind, but actually they have brought with them some dilemmas and some ethical issues. And that's where one of them I would sort of come in at that and this is where I sort of probably made a personal decision on it, was looking at the emergency contraception, so the, the, the what they call the morning after pill. OK, and whether I would choose to prescribe this as a doctor or not, how could I make sure that my patient could still access this? Because you see, remember, I still have to go back to the fact that, yes, I have to obey God's law, but I still have to obey my medical laws. I still have to obey the GMC guidance. So here's that question. Take the morning after pill. Now, personally, I don't agree with that. I don't I wouldn't take it myself personally because I believe that it could work after conception has happened. And if I believe life begins at conception, whenever sperm meet egg, then I don't agree with this personally. Okay, but is there a situation where I'm still happy to prescribe it to someone else? Well, actually, I think there is. And this was the decision that I made. And I really had to wrestle with it because, you see, if I don't prescribe it, I still have to make sure that my patient can access it. Do you remember the duties of the GMC, the doctor, it says that we have to make sure that a patient can still access something we are refusing to prescribe. So what could I do? Well, if I worked in a big practice with lots of other doctors, I could ask one of the other doctors to prescribe it. But what if I was suddenly left on my own in a practice, which has happened? I've worked in practices where I have been the only doctor. Or what if I was working in the emergency setting? What if I was working on a Saturday night and I was the only doctor on covering that area? What if it was a Sunday afternoon and I was the only doctor on? I could send them to the chemist, couldn't I? They could buy it at the chemist because you can. But no chemists are open nearby on a Sunday afternoon. What would I do in each of those scenarios? I still have to make sure the patient can access the treatment. But how can I do that if there's no other way? If I am the last person standing, if I have the last person there? That's a bit of a dilemma. The other one is if I quite simply said, OK, Go and speak to my colleague next door. I'll put you through to the GP in the next room and he'll prescribe it for you. What is achieved by that? You see, maybe let's start and go go to the next step. Here's a patient requesting a treatment that they have to access. They have to get. Now, I can take a step back and refuse to prescribe it, but I still have to point them in the right direction. I still have to say, go to the pharmacy and buy it go to my colleague next door and he will prescribe it. So if I look at the end result is that the patient will still get it. I would look at it that I have an opportunity to talk to them about it fully. And this is part of the stance that I took in the fact that if I prescribe it, I will always prescribe it in a way where I will tell a patient over the phone how it works. Explain to them that this works after conception. In other words, if there is a if there is a patient chatting to me on the phone from a, a faith background or anybody who has uh, strong feelings about when life begins, how will they know what they are taking unless someone explains it to them? I've taken this as an opportunity to explain fully to women how this works and how that may impact them, how that may impact their consideration as to whether or not they take it. 
And I see that as an opportunity because the end result is going to be the same. The end result here is that the patient will have to get it somehow, be that not through me, be that from somebody else. But my decision here was that, well, look, I can prescribe it, but I will make sure that the patient makes an informed choice. It is a bit more grey, isn't it? Because I'm not sure that I thought I would have taken this stance whenever I first started my job. And it took me a while to weigh up the pros and cons. And I know that I have colleagues who will disagree with what I do. But I think there's a way of us having to be prepared for this. And the thing I would impress on you is know what you believe before someone puts you on the spot. I made this decision before the first time somebody asked me about it, before the first patient came in to me, so that I wasn't put on the spot. I didn't make a decision in haste. I made a decision having weighed up all of the evidence, all of the scenarios, everything the Bible had said, everything my conscience said, everything the duties of a doctor had said. I made a fully informed decision. It says, and I'll read here from 1 Peter chapter 3 uh, and verse 15. It says there, um, Be ready to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. You see, we have to be ready to give an answer as a Christian. We have to be ready to give an answer for what we believe. And I think that is being prepared, something that I have learned. Uh, it's a lot harder if you're being put on your uh, on the spot about your faith. Um, so it's about being prepared and being prepared to defend that. I remember um, a girl coming in one day asking me about uh, contraception. And she asked me specifically, and how does this work? And I took it as an opportunity to explain to her. I actually had a, a leaflet on my phone, um, actually, that was produced by the Christian Institute saying about how different contraceptives would work and what may or may not be acceptable to Christians. Now, this girl was from a Roman Catholic background, but she really appreciated the fact that I was fully informed and I was ready to have that conversation with her. And actually, a couple of weeks later, her cousin came in to me specifically for that very reason, because she knew that I would understand and knew that I was willing to have that conversation with her. It does give us opportunities, even if the area is a little grey. One of the other big issues that is maybe something that you're perhaps even starting to see in schools now um, is the issue of changing gender, transgender people. Um, I am not asking you to show hands, but I can guarantee most of you will maybe be at school with someone um, who is perhaps uh, going through a change. Maybe they've changed their name, changed their hairstyle, started wearing trousers instead of a skirt to school. All of these things um, have changed dramatically, really, in the last 10 years, actually. Whenever I qualified, um, CMF, Christian Medical Fellowship, gave us a book um, for new doctors. And it was all about ethical issues that we might face and how to survive as a junior doctor and all those sorts of things. This issue wasn't even mentioned in it. I went and had a look while I was preparing this and it wasn't even mentioned. So little this was considered to be a big issue 10 years ago. And actually, I can count on one hand easily. I could name you easily half a dozen patients in my practice that I know who are either fully through changes, going through changes, going through hormone treatments, whatever. Again, a few issues there as to what do I do? What do am I happy to prescribe? Um, am I happy to prescribe uh, hormone blockers or additional hormones to people who are, who are going through a gender change? Am I happy to look after these patients? Am I happy to call them by the gender they now identify as? If someone comes in and refers to himself as he and I start calling him he and then we later discover actually 
he is is now a he, yes, but was formerly a she, was born female and has started to go under uh, undergo some changes. What is the right thing to do there? I think the thing that I would struggle with here is that sometimes we as Christians, we want everybody to live like Christians. And actually, we choose to follow God's laws because we love God. We accept that these are God's rules and we want to please God. But for people who aren't Christians, they're not going to abide by God's laws. Like God will still judge them. I'm not dis- I'm not dismissing that. But I think we have to accept that we can't always expect everybody to live by Christian standards, especially if they are not Christians. That is what God would intend. He, you know, it's, it's, these are God's laws for everybody universally. But at the same time, people who aren't Christians will not live the way Christians do. Um, I had the opportunity when I was um, in medical school, actually, to go to Nepal for my medical elective. Now, Nepal is a primarily Hindu country. Okay, so obviously a different faith, different religion and different laws there. It wasn't too long before uh, we were out at weekends and uh, eating in restaurants and going different places that we realised that we couldn't really order beef anywhere. A cow is sacred in the Hindu faith. Uh, And so you just couldn't order it. You couldn't come by it in any way Um, until the very last weekend we were there. We went to a completely tourist town. It was purely set up for tourists and there was a steakhouse and we ate the best steak of our lives there. But it's that kind of cultural difference. We were in a Hindu country and we had to obey the Hindu laws in the fact that beef was sacred. And yet there was an area of tourism where we were allowed to break those laws. But it's a bit like that's a silly rule for them to try and get me to obey at other times. Whereas actually, you know, it's a bit like that with us as Christians. People who aren't Christians will not necessarily obey the same laws. And so my patients will have premarital sex. They'll have drugs and alcohol issues. They may feel that they should live as a gender other than what they were born as. They will be homosexuals. They will be sexually promiscuous. They will be criminals. They are sinners. But I'm a sinner too. And so I can't always agree with their life choices. I don't agree with them maybe wishing to change their breast gender. But I am their doctor. I do have to care for them. I do have to treat them. And I have to do that in love and kindness and compassion. You know, I was at a CMF conference and I have to say their teaching has generally been fantastic. But there was one person and I remember him saying, no, I don't think you should call a transgender patient by their new gender. Refer to them as the gender God assigned them at birth. And I just didn't agree with that. I think if that's someone's life choice or a medical issue or whatever, I think we still have to. I still I wonder what is to be achieved by not going along with them in this case, because that is not showing them love or compassion. And where am I getting my my view on this from? Well, I think the example of Jesus, really, you know, how how would Jesus have responded to these people? Well, how did Jesus respond to outcasts or to sinners? He ate with tax collectors. He drank water from the woman at the well who offered it to him. He befriended the criminal on the cross. Jesus hated their sin. He didn't agree with their choices, but he loved them and wanted to show them that love. I have a patient that whenever he first came into me, I didn't realise that he was transgender until it came to doing an examination. And I noticed some scars that uh, were telltale signs that he had formerly been a woman and now wasn't. And yet this patient trusts me. He continues to come back to me. I have regular input with him and I don't agree with his life choice at all. But, you know, I have been there for him and help support him with mental health issues, with his social and housing issues, 
I've been there to help with physical pains from other medical conditions that he has, separate to being transgender. And I have been there for some of his post-surgery recovery. You know, I'm not sure whether he knows I'm a Christian or not, but he knows that I'm a GP who cares. I have his best interests at heart and I show him care and compassion as a person. And I think that's how Jesus would want us to respond here too. Again, it's not it's not uh, giving in to their sin. It's not acknowledging that what they're doing is right. It is not. It's clearly not. But I don't think being against them or I don't think calling this patient, for example, by his female name would achieve anything here. I think that would be hurtful. I think that would be harmful to him. It certainly would not encourage a good doctor patient relationship. And actually, I've had a lot of input there. And I have to remember that I could be a GP in this practice for another 30 years. He could be a patient in that practice for another 30 years. This is an ongoing uh, relationship, an opportunity, perhaps, to show him uh, love and care that a Christian should. The last area that sometimes has thrown some issues for me in work is issues around the end of life. And again, I want to read just a couple of passages. Um, one, uh, first of all, in Job, Job chapter one um, and verse 21. And it says, Naked came I out of my mother's womb and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You see, Job acknowledged there that life came from God, but so did death. Death is as certain as life is. And we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to um, think about it. We, we want to try and put it off, but it is inevitable. It is as much a part of life as living is, that we all must acknowledge that death is the natural endpoint for our physical bodies. I think God is in control of that. And we have to acknowledge that, okay, that God is ultimately in control of when that happens. But there is an issue within medicine as to treatments that can prolong life and treatments that can um, end death or stop death or or prevent death happening. Um, And there are treatments that can speed up death. Um, And there's a bit of an issue or there's ethical issues, I suppose, around when is medical intervention helpful and when is it harmful? When is it not necessarily killing someone? Because again, that is that is wrong. We know that. But when is it okay to allow death to happen naturally, to let things happen? And even if that means that not all treatment is being offered. Let me read from First Samuel. This is First Samuel 31 um, verses 1 to 4. Now the Philistines fought against Israel and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell down slain in the Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines followed hard upon Saul and upon his sons and the Philistines slew Jonathan and Abinadab and Melchishia, Saul's sons. And the battle went sore against Saul and the archers hit him and he was sore wounded of the archers. Then said Saul unto his armour bearer, draw thy sword and thrust it through me therewith, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust through me and abuse me. But his armour bearer would not, for he was sore afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell upon it. Saul here knows that he's going to die. He knows he's been fatally wounded. And so he asks his armour bearer in compassion, put me out of my misery before the Philistines do. And he wouldn't do it. Even though the end result would be the same, even though Saul was about to die, he wouldn't do what we call a compassion killing, perhaps. He wouldn't um, speed up his death because he knew that that was wrong. 
even then in those days, people accepted that actually even quickening up a death that was likely to happen was still considered wrong. And I think that is still the case. I'm not saying, you know, it's clear that assisted dying, helping someone die is wrong. But when is it okay to allow death to happen naturally, even if medical intervention could still help? In hospitals, um, there is a phrase, and you might have heard it if you've watched any medical dramas about do not resuscitate. Um, Sometimes it's called DNR, DNAR, do not resuscitate orders. And actually, even 20, 30 years ago, maybe not even as far back as that, this used to be a decision that was made by doctors alone. Rarely was it consulted with the patient or their family. A doctor would assess a patient and say, look, this patient is perhaps very old, perhaps is very frail, perhaps has many, many medical issues. If their heart or lungs stopped working, would CPR, would you know resuscitation bring them back? And if it did, would they would they recover from that? Um, and again, this is where sometimes medical knowledge will aid you a little bit in knowing which patients will recover sometimes and which patients won't. Um, medical advances have happened, obviously, that it's not just a case of the sort of CPR that you sometimes see on casually with people pounding on, on chests. Obviously, there are defibrillators, there's different drugs, there's ICU, all of these things that can actually help prevent death. And in many times, they are absolutely the right thing to do. There are many, many times that this is successful. But actually, there are a lot of times where this will not be successful. If a patient is very old, if they have a lot of other medical conditions, if there is a condition that they currently have or in a hospital for something that's making them very sick and it's clear that they're not going to recover from it, resuscitation will not necessarily be successful, even if it is tried. And so this is something that really needs to be discussed and I suppose needs to be decided with a family that even if something can be done, is it the right thing to do? Is it going to change the end outcome? And it's a difficult thing because every family will initially say, yes, I want everything to be done right up until the very end. And in a way, yes, that is the logical approach to people who want life to be prolonged. They want their loved one to be with them for a little bit longer. But often these attempts are not successful or or maybe maybe are successful perhaps for a couple of hours, but the heart is weak or the lungs are weak and eventually they will fail. The problem is there's no clear way of saying if that will happen for one patient or if that will happen for another patient. It's very difficult. It's very difficult. I remember asking this of a relative of a man who was in a nursing home. And again, this man, if he his heart or lungs had stopped working in the nursing home, it, a successful resuscitation would have been highly unlikely because he was out of hospital. He was nowhere near a defibrillator machine. It would have been waiting for an ambulance to come. It, it wouldn't have been successful. You know, he, he would have died, I suppose, in the middle of the resuscitation attempt. Um, and the daughter actually went and said, look, I'd like to go and chat this through with the priest, if that's OK. And actually, I, I, it was the first time someone had really challenged me, I suppose, in thinking, Actually, I'd like to go home and maybe chat about someone from a faith background, pray about this, think about this, as to whether it's okay to let someone die naturally. And I think that's the scenario we're looking at here. This is a time where death is inevitable. Death is going to happen naturally. Yes, technically, something may be able to to be done to maybe try and prolong that. But actually, the natural death is still inevitable. It's a tricky area. And I'm not saying that doctors get it right. I'm not saying that Christian doctors get it right all the time either. But it's an area where it is tricky. 
One that gave me a little consideration and a bit of a challenge in the last couple of weeks was a patient of mine who um, had palliative cancer. So she was dying from cancer and she was only 41. And I knew this was not going to be an easy decision anywhere along the last few weeks of her life. But it came to one day that I was on the phone with her and she sounded okay on the phone. And then I checked her blood results and her blood results were so out of the normal range that I said, look, I think I may have to send you to hospital. You know, there's things in your blood results that they could fix, perhaps with fluids and with um, different drips and things like that. And reluctantly, she accepted and she she went to hospital, even though she was feeling well. She said, OK, if my bloods are off, I will go into hospital. She was discharged the following day. But it was clear by that point that actually her bloods were outside of a normal range because her cancer had taken over. This woman was dying and I knew she would only last maybe another week or two more, which turned out to be the case. And so I went to see her a couple of days after she got out of hospital and sat with her and her husband and said, OK, what's important here? You're at home. You've got three kids. If someone were to do your bloods again or if you were to have a temperature or if you were to maybe take sick in the next couple of weeks and there's maybe something that hospital might be able to do to help with that. Do you want to go to hospital? Maybe have to be admitted. Stay in a ward where you can't see your family. Or would you like to stay at home? Because she knew by this stage that her time was coming to an end. And she said, no, I want to stay at home. Even if you think hospital could do something that might help me. I want to stay at home with my family and with my husband. And, you know, I agreed with her and I supported her. And I told her that at that time here, death wasn't happening tomorrow for this girl, but it was going to happen in the next couple of weeks. And the most important thing for her at that time was not accepting what medical treatment might be out there. It was actually accepting that the thing for her that was most important was staying at home with her kids and being able to be with them in her last couple of weeks. It was clear towards the end that she was starting to be in pain and suffering. And so we had to put up some medication that may have damaged her kidneys, may have damaged her heart or her breathing. I'm not saying that it brought death any quicker for her. It wouldn't have, but it certainly helped her not be in pain, even if it made her a little bit more sleepy. I don't think she would have had any regrets as she died as to what happened to her in the previous couple of weeks. I don't think there was any point in that where she felt she should have gone into hospital or treatment should have been any different because she managed to stay at home and have the things that were most important to her, her family around her, and to have medical teams like myself, like the palliative care nurses, everybody else who came in, who were on the same page. We weren't fighting with her. We accepted that actually, yes, there may be things that hospital could do here, but it's not right. It's not appropriate. She wished to allow things to happen naturally and stay at home with the ones who were most important for her. And so the last sort of principle that I've taken away from this part is sometimes that we do have to do things with the best intentions. Before the GMC came up with their duties of a doctor many, many years ago, the first doctors uh, formed or, or sort of followed the Hippocratic Oath, which you may have heard them talk about or talk about in Grey's Anatomy and things. And the first line of that is first do no harm. I pray on pretty much a daily basis before going into work for wisdom with how to deal with patients, how to deal with difficult cases, how to cope with things. And I have a good support team around me. I am fortunate that my uh, sister and my brother-in-law are both Christians and both doctors. I work in a practice where actually there are a lot of Christian doctors there and I can chat about ethical things with them. I can pray with them. I know that I have friends praying for me sometimes whenever I have difficult decisions in work. 
And I think that's the the big thing is that your your heart has to be in the right place. Your intent has to be right. That you want to do what is best for your patient in front of you, but also as a Christian to do your best and to show God's love in the best way to show the love and compassion of Christ. Maybe some of you uh, are uh, ones who have seen or maybe worn the way wristbands, WWJD, what would Jesus do? And I think sometimes I have to ask myself that with each patient I see, what would Jesus do? How would he react here? How would he care here? How would he show love here? That's what I seek to do in my job. It's not always easy. um, And hopefully you can see this evening that sometimes there are some grey and difficult areas. But I know that God has been faithful with me throughout those, um, has helped me make decisions, has helped me be there for patients at a time when they have needed it. Um, And hopefully I have had the opportunity to show them whether they know that I'm a Christian or not, the love of Christ. So thank you very much for listening. Um, As I said, if there are anything, anything there that I've said this evening that you'd like to ask about specifically, because as I said, some of those things are are difficult, maybe things that you hadn't thought about before, um, please do. Okay, let's pray. Father, I want to thank you so much that you're a God who cares about us in our own particular situations. And Father, we all come from different backgrounds and have different roles in life. Um, some of us are involved in medical fields. Some of us are involved in other aspects of life and work. But Father, we know that you're a God who cares about us in our very moments. And Father, as we face moral dilemmas uh, in whatever field or walk of life we're in at this time, Father, we do pray that you'll be with us, that you'll guide us as we make decisions that your Holy Spirit will help us as we read your word and that we'll go away confident knowing that we have followed your will to the best of our ability. Father, we thank you that we can meet still through Zoom, um, although we'd love to meet again in person. But we thank you for the opportunity to come together and to listen both to your word. We thank you what was shared a little bit earlier, just that reflection and reminder about who you are as our great God. So, Father, be with us all until we meet again. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.